0: Hello and happy new year, dear listener. This is Nashville Demystified, a show in which I get to know the city better by talking with the folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. Today, we talk with writer, musician, and present Nashvilleian, Sean Nelson. I'm your host, Alex Steed. National Demystified is made possible by Knack Factory, a video and content production house with offices here in the city. And this show is distributed by We Own This Town, a collection of podcasts made by Nashvillians. All the shows are very good. Go and listen to them right now. Make it your New Year's resolution if it is not already to listen to more shows on the We Own This Town network. As I said at the top of the show, today we are talking with Sean Nelson. I mean, I am talking with Sean Nelson. It's me. The show is me talking with people (laughs) most of the time. Sean has roots here in Tennessee. He is of the Greenbrier distillery Nelsons, which I learned only in passing when he noticed a bottle of the whiskey at the studio. He's living here in the city uh, after a long stretch in Seattle, where he was a writer for Seattle's infamous bi-weekly paper, The Stranger. Sean's a prolific musician. Uh, he recently put out a truly incredible tribute to Harry Nilsson. It's called uh, Nelson Sings Nilsson. The project has been 18 years in the making, maybe more. Sean has released a number of other albums that have come together uh, in the time he's been putting together that one. As a musician, he's probably best known as the singer of Harvey Danger, which put out one of the very best singles in that weird period in the 1990s where actual quote unquote alternative rock could find itself on the radio. It was called Flagpole Sitta. I think sita Sitta. S- Sitta. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember if it's a hard R or not, but that's how I said it because I'm from Maine. Hopefully that's the right way to say it. <laughs> First, please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. uh, Leave a review. I actually just looked uh, to see if you have left reviews and some of you have. And I am grateful for that because in theory, it helps the show. I I only ask because bigger shows that I listen to ask the same thing. And I assume that if Phoebe Judge of Criminal says that leaving reviews is important or Ezra Klein says that leaving reviews is important, I should also be asking you to do the same thing some of you have done and I appreciate it. You can also follow along on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, if you're on Facebook still, for some reason, you can find us there as well. Believe it or not, National Demystified has been chugging along for nine months. I've played with format of the show here and there. When we started, it was uh, it was a conversation with a new Nashvillian and then another conversation with someone who's been here longer. We've had episodes since that are entirely sound collages and others that are devoted to offbeat history. National demystified, I'd say, as a format, is still a work in progress. Though the intent is always the same. This is my endeavor to try to get to know the city better. Without an assignment, so to speak, I'd be at risk at simply just living here and falling into traps of familiarity. I hate it, but I'm a very much a creature of habit. Uh, even though I used to not be, I used to be just a, an agent of chaos. But now, <laughs> now habit uh, has a way of making me feel good. So, uh, incorporated into my habit, something that helps me understand. The the city better. The show is a challenge to myself to, you know, become familiar with my surroundings, become familiar with its history, become familiar with uh, what makes this place special. So without a challenge, you know, I would just be a shut in. And I appreciate you sitting in on uh, this exercise that ensures I don't become that. And really the show it's been successful, uh, by way of being a catalyst for getting to know the city, uh, by way of guests and listeners, I've come across insights, best practices, insider tips, urban legends in, in my script. It says urgent legends, and I don't know what that would be, but I've become familiar with urban legends and I know how to do the Aldi shuffle, uh, which is a thing that guest, uh, Erin Ray talked about when she was on a couple months back. Um, I, I know about malls that are no longer in existence. I know about, uh, Nashville's improv scene from the 1970s when we talked with Daniel Butler about, uh, Jim Varney and the creation of the Ernest character. I've learned quite a bit that I don't think I would have been familiar with otherwise. And I'm grateful for that. Because of the nature of this town and its industry, I'd say in the past handful of months, uh, and, and because of my social circles generally, but because of the, f- the past handful of months, there's been a heavy focus on talking with musicians and entertainers. But even that streak is going to shift in the coming weeks. This week, we talk with Sean, of course, and we'll talk next week with the Weird Sisters. And I'm going to play with format a little bit there, which honors how much of a trip that chat was. But after that, starting in the middle of January or a little bit after the middle, I guess, Nashville Demystified is going to spend a handful of months exploring nashville in the 1980s um i'm eagle t- <laughs> i'm not eagle i'm eager however to share that that series or mini series with with you i want to get to know nashville from all angles and perspectives and uh by jumping back a handful of decades as we enter this new one ourselves i am aiming to do just that but first we should talk with sean nelson let's do that here's sean so, Sean, you are you live in Nashville now? Yes. How did that happen?
1: Well, I moved back about, what, 14 months ago. Mm. My parents are sort of ailing, and uh, that was a big part of why I felt like I needed to come. That's the short version. (laughs) (laughs) Most of my family is here, at least one side of my family, and so I felt like I'd been away for a long time, and there was a pressing need that was health-related with my parents. And then there was this sort of slightly larger, more vague sense of, I guess, free-floating duty to... um, That's (laughs) D-U-T-Y. Free floating duty to like be or learn how to be part of a family, which I had sort of uh, never really learned how to do. And so I I thought it would be important to do that. My brothers too are are here and it's been really good to kind of connect with them a bit more.
0: So you came back here from from Seattle? Yeah. And can you tell me about the last Nashville you know next to this, this Nashville that you've moved back to?
1: Well, we moved here in 1988 uh my dad uh, is from here and he m- went out to california after college to enroll in this new thing that had just started called usc film school <laughs> and um he was in you know the um, one of the first classes that they offered and then he worked in the movie business for like 20 plus years and was very successful at it. He was a sound mixer and he got nominated for a couple of Oscars and he he was at the top of his profession and he had this yearning to come back to Nashville and change careers. And so he did and we all came along and it was, I mean, I had only ever lived in Southern California at that point, I was 14. I mean, being a teenager in Nashville in 1988, 89, 90, it was awful. (laughs) There was really, I'm sure for people who were born here and kind of had a more organic sense of what the city was all about, it just was, it would have been better for them. But for me, it was just, there was really, it seemed like there was nothing going on culture wise, at least in a way that applied to what I was interested in, which was pretty ill-formed at that point anyway. Just before I left and moved to Seattle in 92, there was the beginnings of interesting kind of like indie music culture here. I mean, I'm sure it was actually happening in some way. I just didn't have access to it or know about it. Mm. But I started kind of becoming aware of local bands and they would rent halls and put on shows and stuff. But it was a couple of years before what I always think of as kind of the, the real turning point in Nashville becoming a city I enjoyed at least visiting when you know to see my folks, which was the advent of um, Lucy's, the record store, mm. because that was not only a really great record store, it was this sort of nexus of a certain subculture that happened to align perfectly with what I was interested in by that point. Um, Which was what? Just indie rock, you know. Yeah. I mean, in the kind of <laughs> in the unprepossessing '90s sense, you know, mm. like the word "alternative" is very. Uh, it still feels like a betrayal to even say it out loud, but. The, uh, you know, the things that were sort of below that, mm-hmm. um, radar commercially and culturally, this sort of self-determining indie rock culture that I think of as, you know, what, what, really made that time exciting for me that actually started to kind of show itself in Nashville around that time. Unless of course it had been happening all along and I just didn't know, which is completely possible.
0: Right. Right. But it's, it had revealed itself to you at this like nexus.
1: Yeah. Lucy. Yeah, exactly. And it was, of course, you know, Seattle was one of the bastions of it. And so that was even how I knew about it at all. But while I lived here, it was like, (laughs) this is the maybe the, mm, I don't know if it's the dumbest of all examples, but like you couldn't get an espresso drink. uh, And I know that because my friend and I drove around one night just going to every restaurant asking if they had an espresso machine. Mm. And they all were like, what are you talking about? Like, they didn't even know what it was. I mean, that's not... That's not the measure of a city, clearly, or a culture, but like now you can't walk more than a few blocks before you find a kind of artisanal sort of arrangement. Well, and it's
0: it's also, I think like it has understandably become a symbol of Particular things that happen in neighborhoods, like when you can buy a coffee for more than four dollars or whatever, right? However, like I think people do forget too, like the what you're talking about in the context of of Lucy's. Like, there was a time, I think, especially in the 90s and probably the 80s as well, but I wasn't as conscious where if you found like a coffee shop, you could find other people who like listen to the same kind of music that you did. Sometimes they'd have shows, exactly. You know, you could find like zines, you could do different stuff that like wasn't evident in other places,
1: yeah. Well, I mean, it was a it's that urban idea of the third place, you know, the, the <laughs> idea that isn't your home or your work. When I was a teenager here, I knew only about there was a mall or there was, a, you know, there was Dave's Kid, the bookstore, which was really great. And we lived very close by there. But there just wasn't, there weren't the signposts that I required because I didn't know. I mean, I didn't know what was going on or what I liked, or I didn't know how to become a person. Mm-hmm. And in a way, that's a big part of why I was drawn to live in Seattle, because I had visited out there and... It was a great place to be nineteen at that time. I don't know if it is anymore. <laughs> I, I mean, I hope so. but then again, who cares? <laughs> I'm a hundred years old now, so not my problem.
0: <laughs> so you came here as both an established writer and an established musician. How have those two paths transferred?
1: Well, in a way, they haven't. uh, And by design, like I haven't been writing. I'm not really interested in doing any more journalism, at least not for a while. I got fairly burned out on doing that. And with music, it's been nice. But I have been here for just over a year. And I think I've played three or four shows. And um, they've been really fun. And it's really enjoyable. And I have found a great group of people to play with. But I don't feel like I'm hanging out a shingle trying to kind of claim any kind of prominence i'm just happy to be here and there's good music here and it's something that i am fortunate enough to be able to do actually for the for the joy of it i'm really not interested in a career of that kind anymore which is perfect because it's not available <laughs> but i'm um, it's not like i know a lot of people here are ambitious in that particular way and um i wish them the best and i'm not like i'm that's not what i'm uh, gunning for
0: Right. Well, I mean, I think that it's interesting and maybe it's residual or it's part of the residue of of that time when coffee shops meant another thing or whatever. But it is refreshing running into people who music isn't is a thing that they do, but it's not their career. You mm-hmm. know? And I think that people here find when you run into people, if you talk into someone who is very ambitious about a career, it can be both like, you know, it's like, great. I'm glad that that's happening for you. It can also be exhausting. Yeah, uh,
1: it's I find that that is true. I agree. And I just remember there was a time when being kind of outwardly ambitious about like promoting your business self as a as a musician or performer of any kind was considered, you know, distasteful. There was a stigma against that, against seeming too ambitious. And then somewhere along the way, probably around the turn of the century, that shifted and it became like there was a stigma against being not sort of professional enough or not ambitious enough, not thinking of your music pursuits as a business. That was when I started to really kind of die (laughs) inside. I I just, I like, there's nothing wrong with pursuing a music career at all. There's nothing wrong with it. And also there's nothing wrong with not, you know, and making the art itself and doing the performance, which is a facet of the art. Those things are not necessarily enemies of each other. You know, it's fine any way you want to do it. And I I do feel that somewhere along the line, it just became totally acceptable for people to come up after the show and ask you how much money you made, (laughs) you know, and and how you make a living. And that has become the conversation. And yes, it is a valid point of curiosity, kind of, but it just seems like there are probably better things to talk about, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Yeah, I remember there are a few things where I remember the quote-unquote moment, but like I
0: remember realizing very suddenly without warning that the entire attitude towards careerism had changed when Modest Mouse was in a car commercial, and right. and no one and, and this is like not being like the you know because in retrospect a lot has changed since, but like yeah. I remember people I was like oh people aren't upset about this, and like right. I feel like last year at that time people would have been upset about this, and it just felt like very much like something had changed very quickly.
1: Yeah, I don't remember how this date related to that moment, but I mean I do remember that. But uh, to me, the sort of year zero for that was when they used Pink Moon in a Volkswagen commercial. Oh, sure. That was the I mean, that was the yeah. end of something and the beginning of something else because in fact it was not only an effective advertisement for a car like Jetta sales <laughs> went up, but also, of course, more of Nick Drake's records got sold because of that than the entire time since he made them combined. And also Nick Drake was like the symbol of a thing that he was just too pure and his music was too real to be commercial. And now it's quite literally a commercial. And so it's, you know, it's, it's hard to, at that point, pretend that things are the same at any rate. I was very attached to those kind of anti-ish, you know, feelings about commercials um, though I had a certain amount of contradiction kind of woven into that because of my experience as a major label recording artist mm-hmm. but but you know at the same time like it, that felt like a paradigm shift and ever since then it has it has continued to sort of list in that direction and now for someone to not do a commercial is the news you know right, right. when someone says no or speaks up about it in some way and the idea of like selling out, Yes, that was a very toxic notion that people sort of aimed willy-nilly at anything for a long time, and that was damaging. But now it's like like such a voice from the fringe, the idea of selling out, or that you even could sell out, or that selling out exists. It's like a vegan Thanksgiving. It's so <laughs> unusual, and it just doesn't seem to apply. It's like voting for Ralph Nader or something.
0: <laughs> all things I've been to or done. Yes,
1: um. yeah, we've all been there.
0: You have an illustrious writing career that I want to talk about, and I want to talk about what you're making for new music, but one more thing sort of along those lines. I'm curious. I've been so fascinated with, like, that period from, like, say, 1993 to 1998, Mm -hmm. right? Where it was, like, college radio is a thing that is just like sort of directly translatable and transferable to like popular radio for like seven minutes.
1: Yeah, totally. (laughs) And then
0: there was like the FCC deregulation that happened in 1996 that sort of like changed the trajectory on that. Massively. And then arguably like Woodstock 99 is at least aesthetically when the whole thing died, right? So you know, when you found yourself in a situation where you were a major label artist in the 90s. Right. Right at the end. Oh, was it it
1: I mean, it was 1998. Right, okay. At the end of at least the 90s as an idea. It right. wasn't like temporal <laughs> at the end of the 90s. But yeah, we, I always, I felt very much like we were kind of the last ones through a particular revolving door.
0: Right. That was the interesting thing about that time, right? Is you could hear someone and the song fit into the overall paradigm, the, the whatever the single was would fit into the overall paradigm, but it didn't sound like somebody else, which right. I think that that was sort of interesting or special about that time. So what was it like coming into the 2000s from that? Did you know what was next for you? Like, were you just like, all right, let's figure it out.
1: I mean, in a way, it was really obvious that we were on that sort of one-hit wonder trajectory. Mm -hmm. Like, it wasn't like the success of that one song was opening up a whole world of, like, further recordings. It wasn't as though our band became a popular, beloved thing. It was just like, Everybody, not everybody, definitely not everybody, but lots of people liked this one song Mm. and they liked it a lot and they would never stop playing it on the radio. And, you know, from the initial thing of like, oh, my God, somebody likes something we did. I can't believe it. We've been a band for four years and no one's ever even noticed. Then it turns into like, here you go, like step into this world that you have only ever imagined what it could be like and then you find out what it's like and it's like it's like anyone who has ever taken a ride in a limousine for five (laughs) miles knows exactly what it's like it's just it's nicer in a way than having to drive your own car or whatever but there's a lot wrong with it or there's a lot that's sort of chintzy about it i guess i would say Mm -hmm. But we gained a much bigger audience than we ever would have before. And as a result of that, a tiny fraction of that audience remained interested and stayed with us. And so that was really good. But the story of the first Harvey Danger record is very much like we made it for $3,000 over the course of six days. It couldn't have been a smaller scale thing. And that very record is the thing that kind of became the initial pressing was 1,200 copies. And then it, it sold like half a million copies or, or I don't know how many really, but that was at least that many. And then we went to record the second album and made several of the kind of classic second album mistakes, big expensive studio, you know, <laughs> like all, all of that stuff. But while we were making it, the first of the huge major label mergers happened. And I can't remember if it was Seagram's or Vivendi or some, you know, pretty massive conglomerate bought another slightly smaller conglomerate, and then all of the divisions of those two conglomerates kind of had to wait while someone decided who worked for whom and who owned which contract. And meanwhile, that took almost two years. And by the time they got around to saying, okay, great, your record is going to come out. I mean, it was like, we might as well have been the Dave Clark Five. Like No right. one remembered, really, or cared that much. So all the kind of silly elements of MTV and radio-based hit having, so that you can do this next thing, those kind of all they just evaporated pretty almost instantaneously. And the audiences had changed Because by that time it was really the world of Limp Biscuit and Britney Spears, you know, before which it was like not unheard of for the Flaming Lips to be on an alternative rock radio station Mm. or, you know, there was a lot of trash, but there was a lot of great stuff too. And you Um, couldn't really, it's not like you could just release
0: a single on Spotify, right? Like you, there was a distribution system that, you know. That was the only way. Right. Yeah. If if there was a merger and you were in the middle of it, you weren't putting anything out.
1: And I was on a, I was a partner in what was then a very small label and became a, slightly bigger small label, um, Barsook Records, at that time. And so I sort of I was able to see the version of slugging it out small show by small show, van tour by van tour, with little to no support from any of the kind of big institutions. And it takes a little longer and it's a little bit harder to measure, but, you know, the big success story was Death Cab for Cutie, who were really good friends of mine, and watching them go from this little band that was almost imaginary to being a really well-loved band on a very small circuit to being gradually becoming what they are now, which is a a band with a long career and a bunch of albums and incredibly devout following. It was very clear that like, yeah, that's probably the better way to do it. If you're, (laughs) you know, if you're able to, if you're not shrewd, but smart. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, really talented. And that was another that's another whole area. (laughs) But yeah, like seeing the world change from the perspective of like a large stage at a festival and seeing it go from this sort of whatever, however critical you may have been as a target of music marketing or whatever in the mid 90s, who may have had, you know, the odd sort of punk leaning or like who was, you know, very wary of being marketed to. That's one thing. It's one thing to look around at what was called Alternative Nation and be like, don't try and put that barcode on my forehead. You know, that's not me, <laughs> which is, you know, great. And, but then like to then have it turned into like, yeah, give me that barcode. Is it free? You right. know, and the violence of it and the like, it was just ugly. And mm-hmm. so it was like, I mean, it was convenient that we wanted no part of it because we were offered no part of it, you know, and that was that. Yeah.
0: what's I mean, what's the book? I mean, it's based on the Minutemen song. Is it this band? Our I mean, band could be your life. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. I I read that. It's so funny, the difference between reading it. I read it, like, around when it came out mm-hmm. when I was a child. Yeah. And I read it last year. Yeah. <laughs> and I think I just read it before, like, when I read it when it first came out. I read it because I was wanted to live vicariously and all those sure. things. And stuff. I, mean, I remember what stood out so much about reading it, knowing everything I know now, was, like how much I was struck by how Sonic Youth were like secret careerists. Like Mm -hmm. they got got it from the beginning and like sort of played it and then also made it look like they weren't doing that. And then just reading how much of a legitimate disaster the butthole surfers were. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And seeing like what the actual reality of the lived experience of like diy actually was like it was either you could be very successful like by knowing how to game it a bit Mm -hmm. or you were a disaster and if you succeeded it was remarkable
1: well that's i mean that is the i love that book and i've i've also read it a couple of times and had that a a very similar like oh the romance and then oh my god the (laughs) calculation but um But it's romantic from a distance, but I'm sure, like, while it's happening, there was very little romance attached to those experiences. And, you know, that was a time when the Butthole Surfers, like, the very quality that made them such a disaster as a sort of unit or as a, you know, as a commercial endeavor. Could then be like, they also had a song on commercial Mm. alternative rock radio, you know, and it wasn't bad. It just wasn't Locust Abortion Technician's era, you know, like it was, that was considered a sort of like shot across the bow, but there were so many shots across the bow and Mm. the ship never got hit (laughs) at all. Um, It was an interesting time to live through primarily because you thought it would keep sort of following that trajectory in some way, whatever way it was, it would keep, this was like the beginning of a thing. And in fact, it was like the beginning of a thing that ended one second later. And that's, you know, like, (laughs) we now know that that's just how it works. Right.
0: Okay, so you, since then, have established yourself as a writer, and I'm fascinated by you not being a writer right now. Mm -hmm. I was a columnist and that defined my identity for a super long time. This thing, this podcast is sort of replacing that creative piece. Yeah funny side note before that as a teenager I wrote zines and then when there was a song on the radio that talked about them like people understood what I did so thank you but the um <laughs> oh, <my pleasure. laughs> but so so writing has Yikes. been such a big part but in the middle of the Trump thing I felt like I didn't know reality had shifted so yeah. profoundly and not just partisan political but just it feels like in so many ways reality has shifted so yeah. freaking hard in the past two years that I have had trouble Understanding not just my voices, but what my responsibility is in that world. Yeah. So I don't know where you're coming from in your hiatus, but I'd love to know about your hiatus and I'd love to know about what you did before that.
1: Well, I started working at a paper. Well, I mean, Harvey Danger arose from working at the student newspaper at the University of Washington. We were just all working there and we kind of started a band and it was very much just like this thing we did on the side. And then it kind of, we decided that we really loved doing it and kept doing it. But Really, we all, three of the four of us, wound up having, I guess, what you would have to call careers in, in journalism, one way or another. And so there was a paper in Seattle called The Stranger, or there is still a paper in Seattle called The Stranger, and I started working there in 1996. <laughs> and then I quit in 1998 to go be in the band full-time. And then when the band kind of went on this indefinite period of like, what are we even doing anymore? I went back to The Stranger, for a couple years, then I joined another band and left for a couple years, and then I came back. So it was very much like it was a place that was a very supportive environment for me to do that, and I was really fortunate. And I loved working there. I loved writing for that paper. It eventually encompassed the internet, too, but it was pre-internet, basically. And for a long time, the Paper intentionally had a terrible website because they didn't want people to read it, read the stuff online. Oh, so I didn't was, know
0: that was intentional, but it, I recall it being terrible. <laughs> yeah,
1: it was. That was, I mean, that was during Internet One. Sure, you know, sure, sure, sure. Internet One, everybody else Zero, as I call it. But, um, you know, then eventually, of course, they had to make a blog and have a have a website that was m- much more functional. And phones became involved during that phase. I worked there from like 2003 to 2004 five or four, something like that. And then I left for several years. then I went back in 2014 and I needed a job. And I started working there again as an editor and a writer. And the degree to which commentary about stories that have been written was sort of equally weighted with the stories themselves really was, I found troubling. Because there was a time when it was, you would write something and maybe maybe two people would write like a letter to the editor and one would be semi-positive and the other would be horrendously negative. But it was like you got the sense that you could extrapolate from those letters what other people might be thinking. But now it was just like the comments were like a repository of the most vile hatred Mm -hmm. uh, that the writing seemed incidental to that. That was not what I liked about writing for a newspaper, honestly. And then, you know, the Trump era arose during my last little tenure at the paper, and I was, it was Seattle. The idea that there is a liberal bubble, that's not imaginary, and Seattle is nothing if not that, Seattle proper. There were two Trump rallies in Washington around that time, in, in western Washington, and one was about 100 miles north in a town called Linden, and the other one was in Everett, which is like 20 miles away from Seattle. So I covered those, the first one with a group of my colleagues, and then the other one, I just went by myself. And I must say, my eyes were skinned open by the atmosphere at those rallies. I just didn't, I mean, I knew in a way, maybe intellectually, I I vaguely knew that, that there was sort of a stagnant pond of those kind of sentiments of his supporters, but I didn't understand how active it was and how clearly it had been bred into a lot of people starting at birth that, first of all, Hillary Clinton was Personally a murderer. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and that everything about the government was geared towards keeping you personally down and that there really there's only one savior and it's Donald Trump. And I just the rage that was coming out of them when he made his speech, I guess I really understood it when I listened to his stump speech, which is forty five minutes of horrible sub Don Rickles stand up insult comedy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, his Regular speech. But every time there was a punchline, instead of laughing, the crowd cheered and like screamed with approval. And that was, I just understood something a little more clearly then. And I wrote a piece that was like, I know we all absolutely know that he has no chance of winning, but I mean, he does have a chance of winning and stop saying he doesn't. And um, everyone I worked with at the paper was like, you are a fucking idiot. Like, don't be ridiculous. You have, you know, like they basically were saying that I was not only my own personal credibility, but the credibility of the whole organization was at stake because I had suggested that Donald Trump could win. And then, of course, he won and everybody had their emotional response. And then it turned into what it has remained, which is everybody just sort of, constantly broadcasting the pro or con about the unbearable nightmare of this presidency. And so, like, at a certain point, you can't say anything else, you know, the all expressions have been expressed. Yes, it's good to continue to kind of let people know, I guess, where your sympathies lie. But like, but is it? I don't know. if I mean, I just don't know where the value in that is. Of course, real reporting on him and his various malfeasances is really useful. But the whole like the opinion based narrative is like I, I sort of have come to believe that every word you say just feeds him, right. you know, pro or con. And also, I don't have any I don't have anything else to say. I have no new thoughts about it. So that was indicative of a sort of larger thing where whatever we kind of laughingly refer to as the conversation about culture or politics or whatever, I don't have anything to add to it at this point. Yeah,
0: yeah. I remember the thing that pretty distinctly stuck out to me, and I think it might even have been from before he was elected, was the... I remember when my editors were asking, they liked particular pieces and the pieces they liked were ones that stirred conversation. I remember at one point realizing while writing those pieces that like my brain would go into a particular kind of rhythm. And I would know that I was even just like not based on the content of what I was writing. I know if I were going to write something and it were going to evoke a response, it became sort of predictable. Mm -hmm. And you realized, I mean, you're essentially hypnotizing. You're playing into a dialogue. You're able to, to create like a hypnotic response or not. And those are the ones that have a hypnotic response are the least... Satisfying ones to write because yeah. they're to you, they're so predictable. And then when I saw Sort of what people were responding to on the national level with with him, I was like, oh, like even if we think we're writing original things right now, we're not. We're just filling in. It's like a mad lib, you know.
1: Yeah, <laughs> really I mean, and the answer weird. to me is that you know you got to really go deep into the actual reporting, and reporters remain as valuable as they have ever been, sure, um, and are rewarded less than they have ever been, and it's harder and harder. But you know, social media in general is, I think, an expression of everyone's yearning for a greater attachment to democracy. But I guess I would prefer to see that democracy in politics, you know, and like in our government, and rather than in our personal expression, where it's also monetized by someone else who is also working actively to ruin our lives. Sure, sure. So, So, but not that I, you know, I, I mean, I have social media accounts, and I largely stopped posting to them, maybe a little tiny bit. Every day, Facebook, sends you the memories that you have, <laughs> <laughs> which is in itself a whole... That's We could do two hours on that. But every day you have... 14 memories and I go through and I just delete everything I've ever posted on there day by day and uh, it feels great it feels great (laughs) great to erase myself
0: you interviewed David Berman yeah was that a personal interview or was that was on the phone okay cool so you got to talk to him what what was that interview like
1: I mean it was really exciting for me I mean ever since the Starlight Walker record came out I was like completely dyed-in-the-wool admirer of his And of course, I was a huge pavement aficionado as well. And that connection was interesting. But he was way more interesting than that. And then when Actual Air came out, that was the one. Like, I mean, I love his records. Actual Air was one of those. I mean, I don't even know if I could compare it to any other book that has come out in sort of in my lifetime because not only was it something that was written by someone I already thought of as sort of, you know, cool and smart and good and someone I was a fan of at the time. But it was it was so it was transcendent, you know, I mean, it, I had experiences that I've, I've purchased more copies of that book than certainly any other book I've ever purchased <laughs> copies of um, and given it away to people just because it, it needs to be spread out. I mean, I've probably done that 10 or 11 times enough that when he died, I realized I didn't have a copy anymore and hmm. had to go buy another one.
0: And you were like, listen. I've bought a lot of
1: copies of this exactly. before. You I owe me you forty minutes. <laughs> um It was it was when the record came out when he decided to start touring again. Mm-hmm. And he was living here and he was ostensibly happy, or at least able to seem happy. What's in the published version of that story is what we talked about, which is basically like Remember when selling out used to be a thing you could do? And you know, it wasn't like world shaking but it was was great for me and he was really cool and we met after the show in seattle and we've you know we sort of ever so vaguely corresponded a couple times but not i don't i couldn't say i really knew him but i met him a few times and it was a big deal for me
0: yeah his website the menthol mountains is just like Is i mean i feel like that's a in the oeuvre i feel like that is like of my favorite pieces because looking at footnotes yeah. On, <laughs> yeah, which are like anything from you know, I've heard my, one of my favorites is like commonly just list of links without context. Right. And right. One of the one of the links is to a study on on the effect of like essentially like hot peppers and I think anal fissures. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, is that it's just like is that something you were going through or right. that, did you just? This sign is the best one. <laughs> I found, I've
1: seen them all. This is definitely the best just,
0: one. And I love mm. I love that there is some record of all of the things that appealed without over explanation that that whole and that whole website from start to finish I think that there are you know four or five posts out of literally a thousand that have any original commentary on them.
1: it was very rare you know now we live in, in an age where it's not at all uncommon for the artists you love to eventually issue everything they ever did every demo every every take and there is still a part of me that goes looking for those things you know I mean I'm a I'm certainly a box set consumer. I've reached that age. But with Berman, he was a rare example of someone who, like, just unscrewing the top of his head and, like, shaking out what he was thinking about was ev- interesting every time. Like, mm-hmm. it was always, sure. always super interesting, even if it wasn't fully formed and even if he changed his mind shortly after. <laughs> I remember when I started thinking initially about moving back here. You know, I made a list of pros and cons, and one of the pros was that he lived here. And it wasn't like because I was gonna go and stalk him or anything, but it was like, well, if he lives here, it must actually still be pretty good.
0: Yeah, that I mean that's it's funny you say that Michael, who produces this podcast and I were talking right beforehand, and for me it was there's a band called Bird Cloud that used to be here, and I was like, Oh, they live in Nashville, I get it. And then yeah. I learned that David Berman was here and I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Nashville is not the thing I thought Nashville was. This is cool. Okay, so you Put out a record of you doing Nilsson songs. Yeah, I feel like it's as far as an open-ended question about like what your relationship with that music is is enough to probably keep us occupied forever. But mm-hmm, um, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but what role does he play in your formation?
1: He wasn't formative per se, but the Monkees were a massive piece of my development as a human being. Weirdly enough, like I was 13 when MTV started reissuing those shows and showing them. And I liked the music, I liked the show, but there was a sort of, there was another level to what they were doing that was this meta commentary on the nature of really all performance and all creative stuff, the sort of pop culture that I found totally fascinating. And I was exposed to his music through them covering his music. And so I have known who he was forever. And also the Beatles connection was strong. And I, you know, the Beatles are really the the font of everything that I like (laughs) or care about. (laughs) It was around the time that Harvey Danger was starting to kind of fracture, and there were a bunch of reissues of his records from the late 60s and early to mid-70s that started coming out. And I just, I on a whim, one day bought a stack of them because I had heard a lot of his songs, but I never really listened to the records. And I just became completely immersed in them. I couldn't believe that I hadn't known this music forever because there were elements of it in so many things that I loved. And his voice was just... Astonishing. Like he really, he was a great singer, but more than that, he was a really interesting songwriter and kind of a, there was a, something broken about him that I really responded to. And a lot of his stuff, a lot of his best stuff is sort of fragmentary. Like it didn't, he didn't necessarily finish everything perfectly. And I certainly related to that. And so I just kind of got the idea to do it. And he, you know, he made that record in 69 of him doing Randy Newman songs, Mm. because he was Nilsson was on the ascent, and he was getting a following. But you know, this guy, Randy Newman, no one knew who he was. And so he was like, I'll do a record of your songs. And it was called Nilsson Sings Newman. Mm. It's a great record. And Randy Newman plays piano. And it's just it's a great thing. It's like 24 minutes long. And I just thought, oh, I'll do Nelson Sings Nilsen, and it'll be like a response to that in a way. And I went about doing the classic mistake that people make, that I make certainly. I was just going up to my friends and saying, I have this idea to do this thing called Nelson Sings Nilsen. And they would just look at me like <laughs> like a wall staring at another wall. And I was like, Harry Nilsson, And they would just shake their heads slowly, and then I'd be like, uh the coconut song from Reservoir Dogs and they're like oh god that (laughs) and so this was around 2001 2002 somewhere in there and then you know I started working on it a couple years later and it went really well in a certain sense and then it also sort of didn't go up it took forever to do is basically what happened and during the forever that it took to do there was that Netflix documentary sure. which I played at the premiere of at the Seattle Film Festival like that's how long ago that I was working on the Nielsen record and then I just kind of would shut it down and then revisit it every couple of years and discover that I really loved it but I, I, I don't know what it was that kept making me not Call it finished, other than that i didn 't ever get enough of a <laughs> of a response to, <laughs> to the brilliance of the title from my friends um, and also it was like it 's not like the marketplace was pounding on the desk, demanding it so It's just like, well, I'll put it out one day, maybe. There'll be a right time. And the truth is there never was a right time. And now he's generally, I think, a lot... He's very Mm. well-known, well-regarded. He has a lot of devotees, and people appreciate him, and he has been unforgotten, and that's really good. And, you know, that makes what I thought would be a sort of of ahead-of-the-curve kind of idea... 17 years ago feel like an exploitative afterthought, which in a way would indicate that it would be really successful in the music biz, but that's not, that's not what has happened. I mean, I just put it out myself, and there was as little fanfare as it's possible for there to have, but I think it's good, and I'm I'm proud of it. It's me in a 27-piece orchestra.
0: <laughs> 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 Did you intentionally make it that hard for yourself, or were you...? <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everything I said just now, is the, that's the gentle version of the turmoil that I went through, actually.
0: So, okay, so this is my, I think this is my wrapping bit, which is you uh, obviously, you know, now over time, Nilson Devote, Randy Newman also, and you, you, who you talked to, you know, David Berman. These are three people that I think about as far as in the top 1% of the top 1% who can deliver a song that on the surface sounds like joyful and optimistic and uh, actually has a turn of phrase or a line or a passage that actually will just like rip your guts out and leave them the from yeah, Totally. Um um And even I saw you talk with Fran Leibowitz who's another person who's that's their role in society. That was very daunting. <laughs> you <know? laughs> can you tell me about talking? I mean I, now I want to hear that but can you ta- tell me about talking to Randy? Randy Newman?
1: I've interviewed him, I think, three times Mm. over the years. And the first time was because he was coming to Seattle, because a Seattle theater company was mounting a show called like The Education of Randy Newman or something. It was like a jukebox musical, sort of, of his songs, but there was a, a narrative attached to it. And I mean, it was abysmal. It was a terrible show. But he came to do press and help them out, and I kind of asked him about that. I mean, one of, if not the greatest strengths of his work, I think, is that he's not the guy in the song. Like, he is not the character, he's not the eye. Mm. And in the play version of it, it was very much like Randy Newman singing this song. And then there would be other characters too, but like, centering him seemed like a sort of just a mistake. Of course, I was cowed by his presence. It wasn't like I came in there and was like, don't you think this show sucks? (laughs) But I was like, "Mm, musicals. And he was like, oh, you know, they can work sometimes, I guess. And I just sort of, there's a version of interviewing where, where you have an idea of what you want the person to say, and so you kind of erect a structure that allows them to say only that. And then there's the version where you're like, so excited to just hear anything they have to say, and you're giving them sort of prompts, mm-hmm. not necessarily softball prompts. They might be interesting questions, but like, basically, I wanted to hear whatever he wanted to say and then respond to that and actually have it mirror a conversation. And that's that's basically what happened each of the three times. They were really, I mean... I'm sure he forgot them even while they were happening. But to me, they were like, they were a real thrill.
0: Seeing that through line between sort of all of those people that you're saying one thing, but you're really somewhere underneath saying another, or even just in tandem, you're saying another thing. Mm -hmm. Is that your approach, or is that sort of generally what's appealed to you stylistically? Even the monkeys. I mean, it's like they're pop songs, but they're pop songs that are winking to you about being pop songs, about being, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's a mockumentary.
1: Totally. Ideally, I would love to lay claim to that much guile, but really, when it's somebody I really admire, and I got to the point while working as a, an arts journalist that I was able to, you know, I had access to interviewing people I really admired, and I didn't have to always interview people I didn't admire necessarily. What I really wanted was to give it the sense of a conversation, a little bit of back and forth, but really I wanted to convey what I understood about them or like my idea of of what their work means or whatever and and get them to sort of confirm or refute it, you Mm -hmm. know, and sort of go from there. But I definitely didn't have that sort of... How are we gonna get him to admit that he <laughs> stole that pack of gum in nineteen forty two? You know? It's much closer to being a fan than it is to being a like critic in that sense, though there is a critical element. Um, but I those long running Q and A's, I mean that Fran Lebowitz one is like six thousand words long or something. If you read the whole thing, I don't know if anyone ever has, but I did. And it's just like the music of their voice, you know, is such a it's such a pleasure that you wanna just provide not just a platform for it but like a great platform for it Mm. you know that's because so much of what is the sort of contemporary industrial arts journalism complex is like it's about selling a record or you know getting people to go buy a ticket to a film or something and i can't pretend that that isn't an element to some extent but that's that is like the least interesting part of that whole process to me yeah absolutely
0: Well, thank you so much for coming and talking to me about all of it. I appreciate it. Right on. Thanks for having me. All right. uh, Good luck out in Nashville. Thanks. (laughs) Take care, man. Thanks. All right, everybody, thank you so much for listening to National Demystified. Natural Demystified is a show, as you have just heard, which uh, endeavors to get to know the city better by talking with folks who live, work, agitate, and make art here. This episode was brought to you by Knack Factory and We Own This Town. Thank you so much to Sean Nelson for being on the show. Thank you to Michael Eads, the father of We Own This Town, for putting the episode together, making it sound good. I know it's not an easy task to do, and I appreciate everything. uh, you have done to make this sound great, Michael. That's it for now. Next week is the Weird Sisters, like I said. And then after that, we dive into the 80s. All right, we'll talk soon.